0: Look for The Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining The American Revolution. Today, episode 107, The Battles of Kipps Bay and Harlem Heights. We last left Washington's army, having escaped from almost certain capture on Long Island, across the river to Manhattan on August thirtieth, 1776. Rather than attempt to pursue the Continental Army, British General Howe remained on Long Island, doing pretty much nothing for the next two weeks except deploying his army along the river. During that time, his brother Admiral Howe held his Staten Island Peace Conference, which I discussed two weeks ago. Washington and the Continental Army waited on Manhattan Island for something to happen. During this period of inactivity, after he had recovered from an exhausting two or three days without sleep, General Washington prepared his next steps. He sent multiple letters to Congress asking how he should proceed, since civilian control of the military was of paramount importance. He also held two councils of war with his top officers to figure out how they might mount a defense against the British. At the first meeting on September 6, he discussed his request to Congress that the Army burn New York in order to deny it to the enemy. Then the Army would escape up to the north of Manhattan Island to a safe crossing point to New Jersey. Congress had responded that the Army should not burn New York. This was a departure from its decision in Boston where they did give Washington authority to destroy the city if he deemed it necessary. Washington and his officers debated whether this meant that they should try to hold the city at all costs or simply retreat and hand the city over to the British Army. Since the retreat from Long Island, Washington's army had shrunk from a temporary high of maybe 28,000 down to around 18,000. Most of this increase and decrease came from large numbers of local militia from the area. They arrived days before the Battle of Long Island and just as quickly went home when it seemed clear that they were going to lose. At first, Washington tried to stop the desertions, but then relented, figuring that keeping around large numbers of whiners who wanted to leave was worse than having a smaller corps of men who were still willing to fight. It also strengthened his view that America needed a professional standing army as they could not rely on militia. Of the 18,000 or so that remained, nearly a third were unfit for duty, mostly due to disease. So the attacking British could have about twice as many men as Washington did. And that's not even counting the British Navy, whose guns could wreak havoc on the city from three sides. Now that Howe controlled Long Island, it would be a relatively simple task to cross the East River north of the city and cut off Washington's troops from any line of retreat. None of Washington's officers thought they had any serious chance of stopping the British, but many figured they could make Howe's victory as painful as possible, much like the bloody British victory at Bunker Hill. Several of Washington's letters indicate he thought he would mount a glorious defense and die in battle. The Continental War Council decided to do what just about any military professional would say is the most fundamental mistake any commander can do divide your forces in the face of a superior force. The Continentals deployed about 9,000 men, about half their force, on a northern part of the island under the command of General Heath, where they expected Howe's main attack. They put about 5,000 men at the southern tip of the island under General Putnam, just in case Howe was stupid enough to try a direct frontal assault on the city from the harbor. And they put Generals Green and Spencer, with about 4,000 of their least experienced soldiers, in the middle, where they could be deployed in either direction. The problem, of course, is that no matter where Howe decided to strike, he could easily overwhelm the smaller defense force that he met there. A few days later, on September 12th, the day after the peace conference, Washington called his second council of war. He had received clarification from Congress that he had the discretion to decide whether or not to defend the city, though he still did not have authority to burn it. General Greene, who had recovered from his debilitating illness, proposed that the army abandon New York so that it could live to fight another day, rather than being trapped on the island. The council voted to move its army north of the city to Kingsbridge, where General Howe would likely conduct his landing, aside from a force of 2,000 at Fort Washington to prevent the British Navy from moving up the Hudson River. Over on Long Island, British General Howe planned his attack. Howe's second-in-command, General Clinton, proposed they land at King's Bridge, just as the Continentals thought would be the most obvious place to land. The British could easily overwhelm the defenders there and trap the entire Continental Army on the island below them. Washington would have no choice but to surrender his army and most likely end the rebellion. Howe, though, had other plans. His goal was to take New York, not capture Washington's army. He decided to land just north of the city at Kipps Bay, roughly near modern day 35th Street. This would bypass the city's defenses, but most of the American army would be north of the invasion point, allowing them an easy path of escape. By the day of attack, almost all of the Continental Army had moved north of this point. As the Continentals left the city, they took with them almost anything of possible use to the enemy including church bells, which could, of course, be melted down to make ammunition. Although Washington kept his promise to Congress not to burn New York, he wanted to leave behind as little as possible for use by the enemy. After the Continental Army pulled out of the city, New Yorkers did what they always do when law enforcement breaks down. They looted the city, breaking into houses and businesses, stealing just about anything not nailed down. By the time the British arrived in town, almost anything of value beyond the buildings themselves was long gone. Howe originally planned to attack on September 13th, the anniversary of General Wolfe's victory of Quebec during the French and Indian War. This date was no coincidence. Howe selected the password Quebec for the night of the attack with the countersign Wolf. But organization took longer than planned. The first soldier landed on the morning of September 15th. If Howe had waited another day or two, he might have avoided a battle altogether. The Continental soldiers had already begun their retreat from New York up to King's Bridge to the north. Instead, Howe's invasion force met a relatively small group of a few hundred militia. On the morning of the 15th, five Navy ships opened up an artillery barrage on the bay for an hour. General Clinton then landed an advance force of 4,000 British and Hessian soldiers. The Continental soldiers assigned to defend the shore ran terrified inland. This was a force of less than 1,000 men, mostly militia along with some of the least experienced Continental soldiers. Many of them were armed only with spears. Since this seemed like the most strategically stupid place to land, the best troops were elsewhere. As a result, Clinton's advance force met almost no opposition as it landed. As the Kipps Bay defenders ran north and west, they encountered other regiments who became unnerved by the panicked retreat and fled themselves. Whole regiments began to throw away their guns and equipment so that they could run faster and escape the British. General Washington heard the sound of gunfire and rode toward the battle. As he did, he found his army running toward him in the opposite direction in full flight. He attempted to stop some of the retreating soldiers and get them to make a stand. He even started striking the men who ran past him, trying to stop them from running. Even Washington's presence inspired almost no one to stop. Eventually, the normally imperturbable Washington lost his temper, threw his hat on the ground disgustedly, and said something to the effect of, Are these the soldiers with which I am to defend America? Washington continued to stand, unmoving, as the first British troops approached. The infantry got within fifty yards of Washington, firing at him but unable to hit him. Washington refused to budge, apparently preferring to die on the spot than run away with his army. Eventually, his adjutant Joseph Reed, had to grab the reins of his horse and lead him away from the advancing enemy. General Clinton landed the British, but did not pursue the enemy very far. He was under direct orders to wait for the main force under General Howe to land. That took place over the course of the day. Had Clinton set up defensive lines across the island, he could have captured the 5,000 soldiers under Putnam who were still retreating from the city he might have taken prisoner nearly a third of the Continental Army. Even after Howe's main force landed, most of Putnam's army was still south of the British, moving north. The British had blocked the main road up the center of the island, but they never bothered to extend their lines all the way across to the Hudson River. General Putnam, working with a local named Aaron Burr, moved his 5,000 soldiers out of the city and up the west coast of the island along the Hudson River. Putnam did deploy a few companies to move inland to make sure they would not be surprised by the enemy. Ironically, these companies did make contact with the enemy and engaged in a small firefight. As they retreated back to the main column, the British pursued, leading them straight to Putnam's main force of men. But by the time they arrived, they only made contact with the very rear of the column. There was a brief firefight as the Continentals fought a rearguard action. With the column having moved north of the British line, the British did not pursue them. Patriot propaganda later claimed that General Howe was detained by a patriotic Quaker woman named Mary Murray, who, with her husband Robert, owned one of the finest mansions on the island. Robert Murray was a Loyalist merchant, but two of Mrs. Murray's cousins were fighting with the Continental Army. After General Howe landed, Mrs. Murray and her two daughters opened up their home and their wine cellar to General Howe and his officers. They entertained the general for hours with good wine and witty conversation. Putnam's army had the much-needed time to march up the west side of the island and escape. The Patriots portrayed Mrs. Murray as a hero. Howe's enemies in the army and back in London smeared him with the notion that his interest in women and wine had led to neglect of duty that permitted the Continentals to escape. In truth, Mrs. Murray had no idea that the Continentals were using that afternoon to escape, and that General Howe likely would have moved just as slowly had he been sitting in a tent reading papers as he did chatting with Mrs. Murray. Howe had hours to kill waiting for his entire army to ferry across the East River. He had no intention of moving forward until his entire army had crossed. Howe expected a counterattack from Washington that never came. Marching inland with a partial army into a possible ambush was just the sort of risk that General Howe always avoided. Why put your army at risk if you can be sure to victory a little later? once you have your much larger army fully in position and ready to go. In the end, the Battle of Kipps Bay was not much of a battle at all. Once again, the British advanced and the Americans ran. No counterattack or even a spirited defense ever occurred that day. Later that same day, Howe deployed a brigade south to take possession of the city. The New Yorkers who remained greeted the British as liberators. The British marched to the southern tip of the island and hoisted the Union Jack. They would remain in possession of the city for the remainder of the war. For Washington, the pathetic rout at Kipps Bay was one of the most humiliating experiences of his career. The flight did, however, mean that the army experienced relatively few casualties or even prisoners and lived to fight another day the Americans suffered only about 60 killed and 300 captured. Howe's refusal to cut off the Continental retreat was seen as an act of military malpractice. Continental General Israel Putnam commented that Howe either supported the cause of the Continental Army or was a complete idiot. Howe still seemed to be under the delusion that if he could show the rebels that his army could push them off the field at will, they would soon end the rebellion and submit without the need for a massive loss of life. The day after his landing at Kipps Bay, General Howe marched his army north to confront Washington and the Continentals. The army had just moved past a small Dutch village called Harlem. Washington deployed what remained of his army on a hill just above the village, an area known as Harlem Heights. Today, it's known as Washington Heights. Although the Howes had been all over the world, Washington was determined that these globetrotters would not come to Harlem. Washington used the terrain to establish a multi-layered line of defense where the island narrowed. In the front line, General Greene commanded. If overrun, the men would fall back to a second line commanded by General Putnam. Behind them, General Sullivan, now exchanged for a British officer and permitted to return to battle, commanded a third line. Behind him, Washington set up his command in a local mansion. With his men entrenched on the Rocky Heights, Washington hoped at least to force Howe into a costly charge, much like Bunker Hill. Howe also had the option, though, of sailing behind all of these lines and landing up the Hudson. Fort Washington was still to the north, but even the fort was not proving to be much impediment to the British Navy. The British Army could also move around to the east an attack from behind Washington's lines at Kingsbridge or elsewhere along the Bronx River. For now, though, Howe did not plan either a frontal assault or a flanking movement behind Washington's lines. Howe took up a position about two miles south of Washington. On September 16, the day after the landing at Kipps Bay, Howe sent a small force of 300 regulars to probe Washington's position. Continental forces detected the advance and sent out a force of about 160 soldiers to confront them. Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Knowlton commanded the force. You may recall that Knowlton was a battle-tested veteran who had prevented Howe from forcing a flanking movement around the side of Bunker Hill. Washington hoped Knowlton's leadership would prevent another frightened retreat like the day before. Although Knowlton quickly found his men outnumbered, his men stood their ground and traded fire with the British. The Continentals soon fell back in good order but kept the enemy engaged. As the Continentals retreated, the British began blowing a fox hunt on their bugles, which the Continentals, and Washington especially, took as a deep insult. Washington sent another force under the command of General Nixon to engage with the British. At the same time, he sent Knowlton's Rangers to circle around the battlefield and hit the British from the rear. The Continentals held the high ground on a hill and traded fire with the British. As they did so, Knowlton took his force on a flanking march, attempting to get behind the enemy and attack its rear. But before he could do so, the British began to retreat. Although Nixon's force was supposed to keep the enemy engaged and distracted, it ended up pushing forward and forcing the enemy to retreat. By pushing the enemy back, Knowlton's flanking movement, which was supposed to attack the enemy's rear, ended up hitting the enemy in its side. Washington sent in more reinforcements under the command of General George Clinton, a cousin of the British General Henry Clinton, and no relation to the godfather of funk. Clinton also brought up artillery to use against the British. Now, over on the British side, General Henry Clinton proposed crossing the Harlem River, marching up and crossing behind the Americans to trap them. But, once again, Howe rejected any aggressive action that would trap the Americans. He wanted to leave them a line of retreat so that they would leave Manhattan Island completely, but without forcing a bloody fight to the finish. Instead, the British retreated back from the advancing Americans until they fell under the protection of naval cannon in the river. Because the Americans had pushed back the British advance, patriots deemed the fight a minor but important victory. Sadly for Colonel Knowlton, his brave leadership would earn him a fatal wound, which ended his promising career as a military commander. Beyond his loss and those of a few other brave officers and men, Americans considered the engagement a victory, that proved they could recover from the embarrassing flight at Kipps Bay the day before. For the British, it was only a minor skirmish that only involved the full engagement of a few-hundred-man advance party. Following the day's fighting, the two sides held their lines and waited for something to happen. General Howe was unwilling to engage in a frontal assault on the main lines or attempt any flanking action. Once again, the movement forward stalled, as both sides took another pause. For the next few weeks, the Continentals would stay put, holding Harlem Heights and Fort Washington at the northern tip of Manhattan Island. The British remained in no hurry to push them much further. Howe seemed unwilling to take much of any risk, nor force a bloody engagement that would result in large casualties on either side. As usual, he left Washington with an obvious line of retreat, and waited around for Washington to realize he had no choice but to use it. Next week, we're heading over to France, where King Louis XVI begins its covert assistance to the American cause of liberty. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors Whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at eBayMotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Hi, thanks for joining another American Revolution podcast. Book recommendation. As we head into August, that seems to be the worst month of the year for podcasters. Many podcasters take off for the month of August, given the poor download numbers. But I have published every single week for over two years and don't plan to miss a week this month either. I would appreciate anything anyone can do, though, to help spread the word about the podcast. If you mention that you are enjoying the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or whatever other social media you like. That will help get the word out and hopefully keep up my numbers for the month of August. I also wanted to remind everyone that I will be at History Camp Virginia on November 16, 2019. History Camp is a one day event for amateur historians. All are welcome to come listen to a wide variety of presentations on all sorts of historical events. The event will take place on November 16th at George Mason University. If you are interested in learning more, go to historycamp.org to see about getting tickets. So this week, the British took almost all of the island of Manhattan. People seem to forget about the really central role that New York City area played in the Revolution. It was by far the longest British-occupied city during the war and where both armies spent most of their time. It probably gets less emphasis because, well, quite frankly, the Americans performed pretty badly there. Also, most of the battlefields have long been built over and forgotten. General Washington's only real accomplishment was keeping his army intact, or at least not captured, most of the militia and a great many Continentals deserted the cause during this retreat. People were losing faith in Washington as a leader and beginning to see the cause as hopeless. Of course, that seems to have been General Howe's plan all along, prove to the Americans that resistance was futile while avoiding massive slaughter. Britain would go on to occupy New York City until after the two countries signed the Treaty of Paris ending the war Many years later, it was only after the British evacuated New York that Washington was able to resign his commission, disband the Continental Army, and return home. As we'll see in future episodes, he spent years in North Jersey just waiting to counter whatever the British tried from their New York headquarters. Now, I've already recommended a few books about the Revolution in the New York area, and today is another one. This one is called Revolution on the Hudson New York City and the Hudson River Valley in the American War of Independence by George C. Dawn. Now, unlike some of the other books that only covered the British invasion or some other small section of the war, this book covers the entire Revolution, but from the perspective of New York. Dawn has authored several books about the Revolution and the War of 1812 including another pretty good one on Lexington and Concord. His book, Revolution on the Hudson, was published in 2016, and it's about 350 pages, not counting pretty extensive index and notes. I found it to be well-researched and easy to read. So if you're interested particularly in the war from the New York perspective, Revolution on the Hudson is a great option. For my online recommendation this week, I want to recommend another website, mountvernon.org. As you might guess from its name, this site is run by the nonprofit that maintains Washington's home of Mount Vernon in Northern Virginia. But the site is so much more than simply talking about the house, it contains great short biographies of all sorts of people who were associated with Washington's life, including generals, politicians, Foreigners, the whole bit. It also includes many articles that are summaries of important events in Washington's life, including his fighting in the French and Indian War, of course, the American Revolution, and while serving as president. I've cited a great many of these articles in the Further Reading section of my blog episodes, so you may be familiar with it already. But this really is a great place to find a little more information on people and places. From George Washington's era. Again, if you want to check it out, just go to mountvernon.org for more information. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run? for a second non-consecutive term. These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, wherever you get podcasts.